Hey, this is Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Tonight we're calling tonight. We have a live mannequin here. He happened to wear this shirt tonight. Truly, he wore it, and we are titling our show after this shirt. The name of the show is Keepers of the Fat. <laughs> Thank you, live mannequin. Uh, Keepers of the fat. What's that about you're going to know? And now listen a little bit into the program. I'm going to give you a parental warning. If you're 18 or under, you're going to want to leave. Uh, and if you have sensitive ears, Paul says in Scripture at one place, listen, this is my opinion. I'm speaking as a man. God isn't telling me to write this. He says that, I think, in 1 Corinthians somewhere. It might be, he's talking about marriage. It might be Ephesians. He says, I, I speak as a man. I'm going to speak as a man in a little while about a topic. And if you're sensitive... Just remember, uh, I think it's appropriate, but we'll get to it. I want to reiterate something to all of you. I, I love, I adore the Bible. I believe it is the single most wonderful material gift, material gift God has given us in this day and age. Um, at 5 a.m. this morning, I got a message from a dear friend. It said Isaiah 55, 10, 11, and he says, keep fighting. It says... For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to, the, to some and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but will accomplish that which I purpose. I love that. That's his word. So uh, just remember that. Let's kick this off with the word of prayer. Lord, we love you and seek you. And we pray that the emphasis of the message we'll get through as we talk about uh, some miscellaneous things that have come up in the ministry and uh, follow up from past weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's work backward. Last week we had a wonderfully courageous man, LDS man on the show by the name of Sam Young. He founded Protect LDS Children. I hope that's right. Someone correct me. ProtectLDSChildren.org. And his goal is to put an end to the LDS practice of bishops and bishopric members taking children, people under 18 years of age, into private offices and talking to them about sexual topics. Um, he is holding a march on March 30th, and uh, you can help the cause by going to his website, signing the petition. You don't have to have been LDS to sign this petition to try to put it into the practice. And if you have a story about abuse from that system, then share it there. Uh, we'll let you know what's happening as the March uh, 30th March gets closer. A number of people have written and wondered why Sam continues to be active in the LDS faith. And he didn't tell me this, uh, well, actually not in so many words, but uh, it seems Sam is remaining active for his family and continuity with them, that I don't believe he's a true believer in everything LDS. He merely chooses to presently stay in what he is calling his church. I enjoyed speaking with him and uh, support his efforts, but I do think he's missing the mark uh, in going after just that practice and not the uh, reason why the practice is in place. They are trying to make sure that their children are worthy and, uh, and there's holiness and purity standards that they enforce upon them all because of their theology. And so I think there needs to be a correction there before the practice will truly really end. But nevertheless, we pray uh, God's abundant blessings on Sam 
and hope it brings about some change for good in Mormonism. Then Brother James White, two weeks ago, haven't talked about that. Obviously, we've had a number of viewers and comments, responses from the show. There's like 15,000 views just for two weeks, uh, many of them very positive, especially towards James and his demeanor toward me. Um, understand that uh, I think it was a step in the right direction that we can talk about all kinds of things in the light of love and while I'm pretty certain James is not real fond of my views and perhaps even of me he was willing to sit and talk decently with me as another person and uh, I also want to thank those of you who have been sending me stuff on the Trinity some of you have forwarded information from R.C. Sproul explaining the Trinity. Others have said, suggested I look at Unitarianism or Oneness Pentecostal stuff. Thank you for taking the time to try to help me out. Some wonder if uh, what my time with James, if it's changed my views. And upon some reflection since we met, I suppose, uh, and I kind of talked about this, the greatest obstacle to the Trinity for me is the fact that I can't help but see one God. Uh, who is called the Father in Scripture. I'm not making that up. The Scripture says there is one God, even the Father. That's what it says. Uh, where Trinitarians see the Father as a member of God. And that one's tough for me. Everything else breaks down from there in my mind. Uh, and I also see the one God as manifesting himself, uh, not as the Father, but as God in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. That manifestation of God himself in them is different than how the Trinity teaches it. And then I also see Jesus of Nazareth, God's only human son, the word made flesh, rising to a resurrected inheritance. I see Jesus, the man, having to overcome, learning uh, uh, obedience through suffering, choosing God's will over his own, and overcoming himself in the flesh to take the right hand of the Father. I don't see him as being born and automatically ready to go in the flesh to be uh, called God's only begotten. I see him working through his mortality uh, in strict obedience in a way we could do. And so there's a difference uh, maybe there as well. Uh, but I do have to admit an honest terror in my heart um, that I maintain. And I, I, we're, we're working on something and I looked at recently all the college and universities in the world that are Christian there's a lot of them and then I looked at ministries uh, that are Christian in the world today hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ministries and then looked uh, at uh, the churches the denominations and all the different uh, sects of uh, Christianity and again thousands upon thousands of thousands and uh, all of them revere the Bible to some extent. All of them presumably seek after God. Uh, all of them, majority of them want to please God. All of those university colleges, ministries, churches. And, and I've also, uh, it's like it's been this way for 500 years at least, if, or if not longer. And so we're talking about several billion people represented by all of those groups I was looking at. And... Almost all of them call themselves Trinitarians. And almost all of them believe in a literal eternal hell waiting for most people. And almost all of them believe Jesus is coming back to earth for his second coming. And almost all of them reject a total reconciliationism, which I believe is there. And almost all of them reject 
subjective Christianity, which we teach, in replacement for what they feel is an objective Christianity. And I bet there's not one of them, of all those billions, past, present, or even, or, or maybe even future, that embrace all five of the unique views I have on the Trinity, on eternal punishment, on Jesus coming back, on total reconciliationism, and on the subjective faith. I doubt there's one group in all of those billions who believe those things. And so statistically speaking, there's a great likelihood that I am nuts. There is a, a huge likelihood that I am insane when it comes to reading the Bible and my interpretation of it. I have to admit that. Because if you don't, I mean, why would I have the, the views that, that are right when billions and billions, and, I, and that's what most Orthodox Christians say, who's this guy? Why would you believe it says that? Even if we go through the Greek and even if we talk rationally about it, and I'm not a prophet, and I don't have any extra gifts or anything, but I, it terrifies me. I mean, if hell is a literal, burning, eternal place for most people, I don't want to contribute to people going to it. I really don't. So uh, just because I'm personally convinced these views that go against the historical grain of theological thought, my heart is to only speak the truth whenever I can. It, it, it really is. But take all I say, you know, with a grain of salt and search it out yourself. Really look at it yourself. Pursue God by the Spirit. Read for yourselves. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. And realize that even I understand I'm an anomaly in these views. Now, I'm not alone in my questioning of the Trinity. I, I question it and I go out and look and there's all kinds of people. I'm not alone in my questioning of eternal punishment. There's others. I am definitely not alone in preterism. I didn't create any of it, but I just happen to see all of those anomalies and, and agree with all of them. So uh, I understand why the, the Orthodox evangelicals are so against me. And Dr. White's supporters uh, said in their comments about our conversation that I'm bizarre. Uh, Dr. White called me a walking contradiction, and that's true, but so is he, and so is everybody else. Jesus talked about... Uh, people being walking contradictions when he said their spirit uh, is strong, but their flesh is weak. Paul talk, talked about himself being a walking contradiction when he said um, that that which I would want to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's a walking contradiction. And so we have that in our natures, and I'm just, you know, willing to admit it. One criticism I did resent about James uh, White's visit, not from him, although he did allude to that my Mormon upbringing has clouded my view of the Trinity, uh, it's really not true because my view of the Trinity um, does not reflect, my view of God does not reflect the Mormon view at all, at all, in any way, shape, or form. I don't believe God is a man. I don't believe he has a body of flesh and bone. I don't believe that Jesus was a pre-incarnate spirit, firstborn spirit of, G of God the Father who had a father who had a father. I don't believe any of that. So, that argument that Mormonism is still in me and has affected me is, is really, that one bugs me because I don't think it hold, holds water at all. Finally, some suggest that I use the visit of Dr. White as a marketing ploy because instead of me giving off-the-cuff remarks at the end, we showed a video that was pre-taped. And they said, you just used him to get your message out. And, and in reality, everyone wants to get their message out, so certainly we did that.
We knew he was coming. We didn't ask him to come. He volunteered to come. He asked if he could come on the show. We said yes. So we didn't, we just, I just realized that James represents orthodoxy, the old way, the objective truth. You must believe this way. And I represent the subjective truth. God is leading everybody who are seeking him, to, and we see things differently. Let's get along until uh, things change. And I knew that, and that's why we pre-recorded the thing. So uh, a couple more follow-up points on the Trinity. Uh, one was Dr. James admitting that most Christians, when asked, don't understand the Trinity. They explain modalism. And I didn't jump on that because I didn't want to argue and debate with him and make it contentious. Uh, but we have to ask ourselves, why do you think that is? That when people are asked to explain the Trinity, they really provide a, a definition of modalism, which is God showed up in the form of a man and then shows up in the form of the Holy Spirit, and it's one God, which is a form of modalism. Why do we suppose that is? And I would suggest that because the Trinity is too tough and people don't get it, but modalism they understand. So we have the majority of people who read the Bible and seek to understand God and they're praying to him and everything else and they believe Jesus is the Savior and they see God as a modal in a modalistic sense, then what value is the Trinity if it has to be so strictly taught to you that you can finally get it? You know, it doesn't seem natural to me. Another thing is when I was on live television here in the state, I gave examples of the Trinity several times to explain to callers. That was a frequent call. And um, I said on one show that if you imagine that God is a fire, because scripture calls him a consuming fire, and that when he sent himself to be inhabit Jesus, you take that fire from heaven as if on a stick, and you bring some of it down, that fire still remains, and you put it under glass that represented Jesus and his body. So Jesus walking with God in him fully. And then when Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to his father, the glasses, the, the resurrected body goes up and the flame reunites with God. And then if the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, like flames of fire fell and I, you take some of that fire and you bring it down and that's the Holy Spirit. And then later on, when people die who have that fire in, then they go back to God and the fire joins God and that's how I would explain it. And nobody called and said, no, that's wrong. You're, you're, you're wrong on that. Because I called that explanation the Trinity. That explanation is really modalism, I've since learned. And so I, this past week, I went and I watched some of the videos people have sent me. R.C. Sproul, he's explaining the Trinity, and he says the word person comes from the Greek where they held up masks, one frowning, one smiling. And we can understand the Trinity in that way where uh, Jesus is wearing a mask and the Holy Spirit's wearing a mask, but behind it is God. And that's his way of explaining the Trinity. To me, I'm not that far different than R.C. Sproul. I mean, it's God and he's representing. But R.C. Sproul calls that the Trinity so he, does, he didn't get into any kind of trouble. Plus, he's a scholar. Uh, and so I have realized that everyone is doing the same thing. A lightning bolt came to me. Nobody would ever have a problem with Sean McCraney relative to God if I didn't say I don't believe in the Trinity. I believe I could be up here teaching modalism right now and calling it the Trinity and everybody be, oh, it's okay. Yeah, we don't mind. But when I came out and said, I don't agree with the Trinity, then everybody went ape nuts and, and just started pulling their hair out and calling me a heretic. 
I didn't realize that what we are doing is looking for continuity in the faith to just keep us all on the same page. If, we had, if I had called the Trinity, the Trinity, but I taught modalism, people, would, and, and you know, I love the Trinity, I'm a Trinitarian, people just, oh yeah, well, I don't really agree with that definition, but you know, it's a Trinitarian, and be, get along fine. So what does that tell us? Think about that. It tells me that men have created something that explains God. To me, it's kind of an idol that's maintained in name alone. As long as you're admitting to it, then everyone else can say you're fine. Even if you're off on the way you see it, as long as you claim it, it's going to be okay. Uh, this tells me that's the work of man, not of God. And this is the way men and women think. And the presence of this thinking serves to keep the masses from really seeking and opening up their hearts and minds and openly discussing and talking about all the possibilities within that framework of Trinity, modalism, etc., etc. Okay, give that some thought. I've got to take a drink. While I'm taking a drink, if you're 18 years of age and younger, turn off the show. If you're with your parents, leave the room. If you have sensitive ears and you're looking for someone to speak of inspirational things right now, that's not me. I am going into Sean McCraney has an opinion mode and I'm going to share it strongly. Can a Christian be fat? Is it permissible for someone who's been saved to be loved by God and Jesus who are fat, obese, overweight, carrying an extra five in the trunk, carrying an extra 200 on the frame? When a person becomes a Christian, do they have to lose weight since all things have become new? When a person becomes a Christian, can they gain weight? Or does God see them as inferior in his eyes as a believer? Is God better pleased with his children, saved children, if they're thin? Or better yet, if they're fit? Does he love the non-diabetic better than the diabetic, if the diabetic has diabetes because they're overweight? Does he love a person with hypertension less than a person who doesn't have hypertension because of weight? I mean, is the physical condition of anybody on this earth, the physical condition of their body for whatever reason, something God takes into account in his judgment and assessment of us. I ask this openly because over the course of doing ministry, I have been confronted, typically through email, occasionally verbally. If it's verbally, it's always by a Christian. If it's through email, it's typically a Mormon. 
But if I get confronted one way or another, it's about my size. Now, recently, a well-meaning Christian woman sent me an email, and she said, please, Sean, please consider. She said two things. I only wrote one. Skipping a meal, going to the gym. That's what she said. Please, for your own health, I love your show, but you're on a path that's obvious going to lead to some sort of early death. Last week, I received an email from a Mormon man in Texas. After assuming that I have never repented before God for my sins, his name's Frank, he made further assumptions. Now, about my weight, and then in relationship to the scripture and God. Frank said, the faith of Jesus' followers must be tested, whether by lions in an amphitheater 2,000 years ago, or by a chubby, middle-aged man behind a microphone who has called himself to be a minister. He then added, look back at your YouTube videos and see how far you have fallen, declined. Quote, how can you represent Jesus Christ when you appear on your show to weigh in at 300 plus pound range when the Bible strongly warns against the sin of gluttony? He provided scripture assuming gluttony, because of my size, was my crime. He provided uh, Philippians 3.9, where Paul says the destiny is the destruction, their God is their stomach. And so Paul was saying that they, they fed their fleshly carnal natures, if you look at that Greek, and stomach is just the way to say the carnal natures. It could have been food, but it could have been anything. He quotes Proverbs 23.2, and I want to know, should we be taking this literally? Put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Put a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. Should we be following that now? I mean, it's in the Bible. Should we be taking people who have a little bit more size than others and suggest that they're committing adultery, I mean, uh, adultery or I mean, gluttony and say, <laughs> hold a knife to your throat? In other words, in your life, if you're going to pursue this course, Romans 13.4, Paul says, Clothe yourself with the love of Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Again, uh, Frank says, this is talking to you, Sean. Then Frank asked me, was Jesus obese? Were any of his apostles? <laughs> and he finalized his opinion with, quote, Please repent of your gluttony and save yourself physically from possible heart attack, stroke, diabetes, but more importantly, save yourself spiritually. Your family needs a husband and father who is not obese, and Jesus wants a disciple who is at his proper weight. End quote. So, again, what are we to say in the face of this? Now, I'm a 56-year-old man, and my skin is pretty thick. Uh, I get hurt, and things bug me. But, I mean, I've been doing this live for a long time, and my skin is thick. But I'm representing everybody else 
who hasn't grown accustomed to this kind of shit in the body. I have three daughters. You want to talk about body issues and shame? We get that from our fucking mademoiselles. We get it from our vogues. We get it from the fucking TV. But we come to church and we're going to give it to each other in here too? You fucking bastards. You think that you can use Jesus' name and call people out because they have a difference in size that you don't respect or appreciate? You actually think that God is seeing it that way? How on earth could you walk around as a lover of Jesus and say or allude to any of this to anybody on earth? You can say it to me, you fuckers, and I would take you out in the parking lot and show you how fat I am. But a girl can't do that. And neither can guys who don't know how to do that sort of thing. And it goes on in our little cultures, in Jesus' name. Because Jesus wasn't obese, and neither were his apostles. And hold a, th a knife to your throat if you're given to gluttony. And obviously, if your butt's too big then you're a glutton. Or you have too much belly fat, you're a glutton. Or if you have any sort of problem in your physical appearance that is outside the norm, you have the problem and Jesus wants you to fix it. Obviously, the presence of such passages lead religionists. Here's the Bible being used in the wrong way all the way down the line. Ugh. If people can somehow believe they can justify assessing other people's physical, physicality using God's name. I want to point out some reasons why reform is so necessary. First of all, as I mentioned, the scripture warns against gluttony. Certainly this act is practiced by people who have weight problems, but it's not always the case. I have friends who do not work out. I work out six days a frickin' week, and I always have. I lift like a banshee. I'm not justifying anything. I bench 400 a couple times. I work out cardiovascular every day except for Sunday. I have friends who've never stepped foot in a gym, don't exercise at all, eat more than I do, and are thin as rails. And they'll go to a Taco Bell and they'll practice acts of gluttony. You just don't see it. See, Christ has overcome something called genetics that we all bear with us. Some are genetically predisposed to be thin and svelte and beautiful of face and perfect boobs and small whatever and la la la. And some guys are genetically predisposed to be really muscular and trim and low body fat. And some guys are heavier and genetic dispositions are done away with in Christ. If you're genetically predisposed to be gay, Jesus fixes that. If you're gen genetically predisposed to be obese, Jesus accepts you. We are outside of that realm where Jesus and God are looking down. Now listen in the Old Testament. If you are born with a crooked nose or a bent back 
Or if you were a dwarf, you couldn't go in the temple. Because that's the law. And under God's law, where perfection's necessary, everybody had to walk around in Mademoiselle Perfection. GQ Beauty. But when Christ came, he said, look, I'm fulfilling everything. The veil's rent. Everybody come in. Because genetic predispositions and failures of the flesh are irrelevant to me. My kingdom is spiritual. It abides in the heart of people, not in the flesh of people. You understand? So, with Jesus, we begin. With Jesus in the narrative, we begin to see things change. Jesus said, you know, it's not what goes in the mouth. It's what comes out of it. That was a step in, that, in this direction that we should be in by now. It's not what's going in, it's what's coming out. You know, if what's going in is a lot of fish and bread and Twinkies and Taco Bell, he doesn't say hold a, hold a knife to your throat. He says, I love you. That's what he says. And if your genetic predisposition is, is gayness or whateverness, he says, I came, I love you as you are. Let me just love you as you are. And then we can start looking at him and seeing what he wants us to be, not what others. Jesus said, you know, John the Baptist came, he didn't eat or drink, Old Testament. But, I, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. He was showing us that there's a transition through all of this garbage, and we got to stop looking at the physical garbage and realize our Messiah came eating and drinking, and he enjoyed his life. Paul said in Colossians 2.16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to a holy day or a new moon or Sabbath days. Because he filled the law, we could say the same thing about a crooked nose or a bent back or a dwarf or any other genetic predisposition that comes along with being <coughs> born in a fallen world. Jesus, Paul, were breaking down the baloney. But still, it, it continues to exist by the religionists in this world. They continue, continue to think that having begun in the spirit, they can be perfected in the flesh and pick on other people and judge them, thinking they know that they, thinking they have the right to judge another person because of some condition in their, in their body. We had a lady here who told someone who was in a wheelchair from birth, if she had enough faith, she wouldn't be in that wheelchair. This is insanity that we take that text and assign it to people in that way. Happened right here in this building. This girl was in a wheelchair as a child from cerebral palsy and was told. Another point I want to make is that when we judge people in the flesh and we tell them to fix things in their flesh by their flesh, what we're doing is promoting the flesh. That's what we're doing. We're correcting fleshly issues with the flesh and not responding them by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long, something, blah, 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 right? So when we see somebody who has something, we don't try to fix them through the flesh, like stop drinking your fucking Diet Coke and stop, stop doing this and stop eating fried foods and la 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 la. We say, Lord Jesus, let's pray, let's talk. How, how can I help you? And we receive each other. 
How can you overcome the flesh by the flesh? You can't. Let me explain from my own life, and I'm going to illustrate this point. I come from a long line of heavy people. Our heritage is from hardy field workers who bore a lot of weight to work through the heavy winters back in, in the British Isles. My aunt was 800 pounds, 800 pounds when she died at 60. My dad, who's still alive, is 360. He's 86. You don't see 360-pound 86-year-olds wandering around, still active in the stock market. That's my old man. So unlike many others, we have a huge propensity for weight gain in our family. We also have a propensity for an inability to manage stress. And so over time, our family members, if we look at the family tree, have managed stress through alcoholism, drug abuse, sex addiction, and, of course, abuse of food. That inability to manage stress has been handed down from generation to generation. And when we get stressed, we have an, we have an opportunity. I'm going to bang the neighbor, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to shoot up, or I'm going to eat something. Well, we eat something. Okay? That's what we do. Third, I was born fat. There's a picture of me sitting in a tub where I'm an enormous little baby. That's called genetics. And that didn't start to fall off until I started swimming in high school. So I was picked on for being heavy, chubby, portly, chunky, fat since I was a little kid. I started swimming. It started falling off. But where the tall, lanky swimmers got super thin and lean, I just got more muscular and big and toned, but I was still thicker and heavier than them. That's called a body type. We have them in this world, don't we? Who made me this way? God did. He made us all the way we have. It's our body that we come with. And you're not going to change anything unless you get plastic surgery. So... When I stopped swimming competitively in college, no matter what you do, you're swimming 20,000 yards a day for, two and a, for four and a half hours a day. No matter what you do, you're going to start gaining weight. When you have the genetic predisposition to gain weight, and then you eat during times of stress, it comes on like that. And then you get the ridicule again. Constant reference. But the lesson gets better. When we started the show out in 2006... I was probably close to 280, maybe 290. That's how I came to know the Lord. That's how I felt good about my relationship with the Lord. So I didn't have any shame at all of getting on TV, live TV, and talking about Jesus. And the first show I came dressed in my own clothes and with an air of complete authenticity. I didn't think, I honestly didn't think there would be any sort of repercussion from my presence. This is a picture, show the first picture, of what I look like. That's the first show, okay? Bleach my hair before that, and those are my clothes, and so I do it, and I'm heavy. Guess what happened? Within four weeks of my doing the show, the main criticism was not my information. The main criticism was not my way of giving the information. It was about my style. My hair, my clothes, but more than anything else, my weight. 
from religi religiosity, religious people from both sides. The Baptists told me to dress better, dress better to represent Jesus. And the Mormons said, how can anyone trust a fat freak like you? So I thought I could take it, but it started to wear me down. You'd get enough emails like that when you're on, an, on the air, you start to think, okay, I can get back. I'm going to show them. So I soon discovered I'm going to show them, and I did what's necessary for me to show an audience that I can lose weight. That's not what normal people have to do to lose weight. What I have to do to get thin and respectable is work out twice a day and eat 1,200 calories or less like a maniac to get down to a reasonable size, you fuckers. A reasonable size. Not thin. Just a reasonable size. This is what I turned into after about a year. My daughter Delaney says, you traded one accused trait of being a glutton for manorexia and bulimia and insane obsessive thinking. What's the difference? She's really right. Guess what happened? People stopped picking on me when handsome Sean, oh boy, boy, Hollywood looks, man. We really respect you now. And uh, so I started to get loved and I got myself to that state of beauty by my flesh and guess what it brought in my flesh? Pride. Guess what else it brought to my flesh? Women. In abundance. Who even threatened my marriage. Because of the attention from the women. Because the world wanted me to be more representative of Jesus. So I got myself looking real good for you all. And what did it do? You change things by the flesh. You live by the flesh. You get the flesh. You get pride, you get arrogance, you get ego, and you lose the honesty. You lose the authenticity. And I realized I was paying a price to feed my ego over a course of many, many years. The emails of late say, go back and look at how far I've fallen. But in reality, there's the irony because what they and you might see as a decline, God sees, my wife sees, my children see as someone who's become more real, more like their real self, someone who's authentic in Christ Jesus. Not acceptable to you, but acceptable to him, acceptable to me. You don't like my size? Fuck you. Fuck you. I don't care. But change your attitude. Who do you think you are that you can look down on anybody for any physical difference, even beauty? Someone's too attractive. You pick on them if you're a Christian. They shouldn't look so pretty. I mean, you name it, you vipers are out there ripping people apart in the name of God and in the place of religion. How are you going to judge size anyway? The, the body mass index? That's proven to be a joke. The food pyramid, you're going to say, oh, you got to do this. That's proven to be a joke too. Science can't answer it. So how are you going to judge what is sizable and what is not? <sighs> yes, I still work out, but
But no, I don't starve myself. Yes, I overeat sometimes. So what? I have something to say, if it hasn't come through clearly, to anybody who criticizes people in the name of Jesus for their size, their deformities, their health, their lack of health, their failure to keep a job, their inability to cope with stress, their alcoholism, their addictions, their sexual proclivities. Wake the fuck up. Just wake up. Jesus came to a world that was broken and sold in sin for you and I, all of us. The longer we royal in this Old Testament thinking, the longer it's going to take for people who need Jesus' love the most to come into a church and feel welcome for who they are. The sooner our girls are going to be able to relax when they're in a church instead of being just as terrified in a church for the way they look or dress as they are in the outside world. Sometimes it's even worse. I know it's been, I know it's been a vulgar night because I've talked to you as a man. You want to try to improve me in my flesh? When you get in my flesh, this is what you get from me. You want to hear my spirit and talk about spiritual things? Let's do it. And let's stay away from these vulgar topics. Right? No one wants to hear someone on a Christian show talk like this. But you want me to respond to you in fleshly ways to make you happy. It's, it's illogical. It's inconsistent. Don't use the F word, Sean, but get thin. It's one and the same, you idiots. I had to get it off my chest because it has been there and it's needed. It's needed and I had to put it on tape for other people to see. You guys cause so much angst and pain in the name of Christ and in his church with your perfection and you pastors and your, your, your trimness and your little fit wives and your you know, little beautiful children. I'm not picking on them because they're beautiful or fit. But when you look down and you kind of put a standard up for everyone else to fall in line, watch out. Watch out what you put off on people in the name of Jesus. Remember, it's love. All right, let's open up the phone lines if there's any calls <laughs> ever again. Are there any calls? Line one. Our audience now tells me line one. That's how, that's what we've gotten to here. No more on the screen. No more someone coming out. The audience. Line one, Sean. Hey, what's up? Hi, Sean. How's it going? Going good. How are you doing? Doing good. The question I had for you was about a, doc about a doctrine called preterism. Are you familiar with that? Preterist doctrine? Yes. Is, is that a doctrine that teaches that Jesus Christ has already returned to earth a second time? Yes, I am familiar with it. Explain to me, uh, what are your views on that? Because I was reading something on the internet that said you believe that. Yeah, I believe it wholeheartedly, completely, 100% without a doubtly. Give me some scripture to back it up then. Oh, brother. Uh, we can't... It, that's the thing about it. And, and it's the thing about with any topic that's difficult is that it's it's not going to be one passage or two 
It's going to be an overall view of what is said in the New Testament about his return, and then what secular history shows happens within the time frame of when he said and his apostles said he was coming back. And so, well, if, he's already, uh, if he's already returned a second time, then why are we still waiting for his return? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? And that's what preterists say. Why are people still saying he's coming back his second time when he's already come? So, uh, and, it, and it makes a huge difference in how we live the faith and how we see the faith, depending on what your eschatology is. I was a well, few... I, I, Go ahead. I'm Calvinist, and I, I'm Calvinist, and I can tell you you are 100% wrong on that, but you're 100% correct on your view of the Mormon Church. Well, so I guess I'm a 50 percenter. By all means, you are the most 50th percenter that ever lived. <laughs> I'll take it, brother. I, I, I'll take it. Listen, uh, we ha if you stay on the line, we'll send you some material. I think that would be greatly beneficial for the topic of preterism. You can be a, five, well, you can be a Calvinist and be a preterist. You went, for, you went from Joseph Smith to Chuck Smith, dude. What's that? You went from Joseph Smith to Chuck Smith. You're affiliated with Calvary Chapel? I was affiliated with Calvary Chapel, and that's where I learned futurism, and I embraced it wholeheartedly until Scripture showed me otherwise, and I changed. So God did not predestine you to change? Uh, I, I don't think God predestined me to change, but I think God, uh, He knew what I was going to be doing. Moving to Utah? Moving to Utah. What's wrong with Huntington Beach? What's wrong with working in a park? Well, uh, I had a call on my life, and that call, Dan, was to come to Utah and to share the message of Jesus Christ with the LDS people and anybody else who would listen. I've, well, I've seen the videos on YouTube, and I think that you're hilarious when you're talking to the Mormons, like the caller that called in and said that Jesus was a Mormon, and the, another one episode that you had where you said he's not a man, he doesn't have a penis. I thought that was classic. Well, here is the thing, Dan, and this is the irony of what, what happened. People loved me when I was talking to Mormons that way, and they thought I was just, you know, the cat's meow. But when I turned it and I started, when I started talking about Calvinists, I suddenly lost appeal. I suddenly became the dumbest man on the face of the earth. No, when you talk about the Mormons, do you have knowledge of that? So for 40 years, you believed that Satan was your brother, and you wore magic underwear in church every week? Yes, I did. Oh, man. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but it's all good, though. It's all good, and God is working, right? God, is, God doesn't work. Well, I mean, among us. No, God doesn't work among us. <laughs> okay, God's taking a vacation. He's laying on the beach. He doesn't give a rat's rear end about us. He's not working. I'm sorry for the language. <laughs> It's, it's, the Bible says we are to rest in his presence. Yes, so we are to rest. Too. We are to rest. I don't know how to describe what God's doing then. Well, why don't you ask him? <laughs> but I'm asking you to tell me. You corrected me on saying working. What's he doing then? How would you I say know, it? God, 
Well, if he has good taste in, 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 in television, he will be. I think he put the bleep button several times on tonight's show, though. Oh, okay. Well, hey, brother, do you want a book on preterism? I, I just I want to know. You, you dodged the question. You can't answer. I didn't dodge the question. I didn't dodge the question. I can talk to you ad nauseum about the question, but it's just a timely thing. I, we have other callers, and I don't want to bore people with it. You can start. No, no, you, no, no, no. You can start. I mean, you, if, if people know that you are actually saying that Jesus Christ has already returned a second time, I'm not going to be the only call you get on that matter. No, I know that, but here's here's the thing. Uh, Daryl, is that when the question's asked, do you believe Jesus has returned? And I say, yes, he's already returned. Do you, that's like throwing a, a hot, I don't even know what it's like doing. It's like doing something really shocking. And you have, to, you have to let people understand what that means and why. You don't just say Jesus Christ has already come back. If someone said that to me, I'd say when I was a futurist, no way. I'm not even listening to you. It doesn't work like that. Jesus said, it will be a generation and all these things will come to pass. Every one of his apostles taught, every one of them who wrote, that he was coming back and the Greek tells us that he was coming back in a period of time that was very, very, very short. There's no other way to get around the Greek. You know what Christian apologists say about that? They say the apostles were wrong. The apostles thought he was coming back, but he didn't. Now, if the apostles were wrong on when he was coming back, then why read anything else they say? I say they were right. They knew what they were talking about. They were there to protect the church. And their words, if you read them, they are all suggesting he was coming back. So if, he, if he's already come back, then we're all waiting for his third return. No, we're not waiting for a return, brother. Here's how it works. He came, he took his church, he took his bride, and now the body of Christ will continue on as an eternal kingdom where God is bringing in believers, children into his kingdom forever and evermore. And you will experience your own second coming when you die. You'll be raptured to heaven, you'll be judged, you'll be given a resurrected body, and you will have your second coming with Jesus at that time. That's something that Calvary Chapel teaches about the pre-trib rapture. No, there is no rapture of the saints. If you look in the Bible, you'll find that out. Yeah, well, I, I believe there is a being called up when you're, when you're dead, individually. But I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel. It's a long subject, brother. We got other calls. But if you stay on the line, we'll send you that book free. Okay, I like the book. Okay, hold on. Okay, one thing about losing weight is I, I won't sweat as much. Okay, let's go to Michael in Sweden. Michael! Hey, hey, brother, brother, Sean. Hey. hey. I wanted to let you know, didn't you hear about the third commandment? It's love God, love one another only if you're skinny. And number three, do not be gluttonous, for then you will go to Gehenna. <laughs> exactly, Michael, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Hey, Sean, I, I, I'm telling you, this is one of my most favorite calls, and I think it's been brewing for a long time, not just in you, but in many of us fellow Christians that have heard this over and over on the shows and so on. And you know what? I am fat, and I'm proud to be fat, and the Lord loves me, and he's going to let me 
come into his arms, and whether I'm fat, skinny, or tall, or short, or crooked-nosed, he's going to hug me and love me, because that's what God is, is love. Amen. He's not the judger of your body, he's the judger of your heart. So I'm very thankful that you have taken the courage, taken the words today, and brought out a message of love, and, and, and to teach people to stop condemning each other in the church. So amen, brother, amen thousand times for what you just said tonight thanks so much my brother really appreciate your comments yeah love you i'll Michael. talk to you soon brother okay bye-bye love you bye love you too all right let's go to line three or one wendy put the mcdonald's away is it three we're going to three are you on the air oh nobody no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> FCC calling. <laughs> All right, you guys. We are, I guess there's nobody else on there. I hope you'll understand in the 11 years of doing weekly live shows, I haven't dropped the F-bomb. I did it for a purpose to emphasize the point and to make, I mean, it's like Bobby Knight used to say, there's no word like the F-bomb when properly placed. And uh, I, I believe that when it comes to this subject, it won't be coming back. I haven't declined so much now or I'm now a swearing fatty. I just understand. We are just trying to break through to people and get you to think about this stuff as Christians. We love you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.